Well, we don't have um, more than an hour for this conversation today, so I'm going to go ahead and kick us off, if that's okay for everybody. I see nodding heads, closing the panelist panel or the attendee panel, because I don't want to see how many people join, making me nervous. I get stage fright, even after all this time. All right. So hello, uh, welcome everybody to a live episode of Professional Humans. I'm Ellie Rader, here with my co-host Aileen Guiney, and several guests that I'll introduce in just a moment. Um, but thank you all for coming. Um, today we have a really remarkable group of guests assembled to discuss the ways that racism manifests in the workplace. We're really honored to be partnering on this episode with the University of Minnesota Carlson School of Management. And a really huge thanks to Brian Mogren and Maggie Thomas from the school for all of the hard work they did um, to help coordinate this and make this uh, episode happen. We are joined by four students from the Carlson School, all working full-time in their fields while they earn their MBAs. And then we also have four guests from our professional network who work in corporate settings. Some of our guests have been in their career for a short time and some for many years. But what they have in common is a commitment to helping us see the ways that the current work experience for black professionals just isn't good enough. In her book, um, White Fragility, Robin D'Angelo draws an analogy that racism can be like looking into a bird cage. If you're too close to the cage, you can see the bird and not the cage. I propose the possibility that many of us could be in an environment where we're too close to it and we cannot see it. So we brought these guests together to have a conversation about their experience so that we may see it and confront it and begin to do the work of using our privilege and our position and our hearts to reshape their experience. If if you've listened to Professional Humans before, uh, you may remember that we have declared from the very beginning, I'm on record saying it, um, that we're not here with answers for you. Um, we're here to ask a lot of questions. It's a podcast that is meant to be a conversation exploring the many things that we navigate in the quest to achieve work-life balance, learn to advocate for our rights in the workplace, and to find ways to bring our authentic selves to work. So I'm really excited and eager to have this conversation and so grateful to all of our guests uh, for being so generous with their time today and helping us dig into this issue. And with that, I will turn it over to Aileen. Thanks, Ellie. So we're gonna dive right in. Um, and the way we'll do this is we'll start with uh, question that will ask each of our guests to provide a short story uh, about how they have experienced race at work and in their professional lives. And uh, when you, when each guest goes, um, just give a, maybe a little brief history so that we can understand your story. And then we'll, uh, we'll turn to the um, Carlson students to ask questions. So let me start with Terry. Terry, is there a story that you can share us, share with us? Sure, thanks, Elaine. Um, happy to be here uh, with all of you and with these distinguished uh, panelists as well. And my story is one that is small and simple, 
but it's also one of the defining things of the career that I'm in. So I am a lawyer and I started in law firms. And in one of my very first jobs, there was an issue about the way that work was handed out. For those who are familiar with law firms, the way work is handed out is one of the biggest issues in terms of training and also client development and what ultimately causes people to make partner and be successful or not. And the experience that I had was as a very young lawyer, very early in my career, working at a firm. And at the firm, there was a big project coming in and there were three associates and they sat us all down. Um, the partner who was running the project who happened to be a white male, laid out everything about what this project was going to look like, what this kind of, uh, what kinds of tasks were gonna come out of it and the fact that all of us were gonna be used for this. So a week or two passes and the first assignment is given out and it happened to be given to the white male associate next door to me. And then another assignment came out and it also went to the white male associate next door to me. Then a third assignment came out. At this point, the associates were fairly close. We would talk to each other. And he was saying, I am so overworked. I can't believe I got another assignment on this case. And I had not gotten a single assignment and had capacity. And the woman who happened to be an older white woman who had gone back to law school um, much later in life also had not gotten an assignment. And I say that it's small but pivotal because it starts those questions. Why didn't we get assignments? Is it us? We were all prepped at the same time. We've got capacity. Did I do something else wrong and nobody told me? That ambiguity and that awful feeling that many African-American attorneys have, and yet nothing is being, is truly overt and that I can speak to and point to. And so it was just one of those experiences that showed me my path in this world is going to be different from others. Uh, some people may wonder, well, what did you do? Um, in my case, I ended up going to the partner who managed all the associates and I just said to her, you know, let me lay out for you what I've seen. I'm not gonna tell you that I'm right. I don't pretend to know all the facts, but this is what I saw and you do with it what you wish. And as some of you might have guessed, a small assignment came in to me from that partner the next week. But it was never quite the same amount or quality of the work uh, that the other associate received. So that was one of my first brushes with how um, race and who you are can play in the way that the work you're being given, um, you know, what you get. Thank you, Terry. Ryan, do you want to kick off a question? Yes. <laughs> um, I, and this is maybe a broader question than, it definitely is a broader question than just a workplace, but I think it's really, or I hope it's really applicable to the workplace. And my, my question is how do we all kind of seize this moment that feels in many ways different than um, all of the moments that have come before so that we can actually impact or create positive impact, create positive change and not let this moment pass us by once again. 
It's a great question. Uh, Terry, do you want to maybe give your initial uh, thoughts on that? And then I, I think I'll turn to another uh, guest here to provide their story so we can kind of keep the conversation going. I think it's a really exciting moment because to the extent anyone ever felt like we don't have license and an open path to start having these conversations, we have license and an open path. I mean, mm -hmm. I would argue you, it's a path that we all, and many of us have taken, whether we thought we had license or not, quite frankly. But at this moment, this is a moment to start to ask those questions. Um, so, and the questions are gonna vary depending on the workplace. The question may be, how are we deciding who we hire? What organizations are we going out to? How do we choose those organizations? Why haven't we been involved, whatever your business area is, in the professional organizations, particularly those for people of color, for African-Americans, for Hispanics? Can we get funds now to go and travel to conferences and do things to make sure that senior members show up, not just often the junior people who ultimately can't impact how opportunities or business are handed out or given? Um, I think it's really important to sit back, look at your space and think, what can I go out and ask for at this pivotal moment? Thanks, Terry. Um, I'm going to ask um, Denise, would you be willing to share a story next? Yeah, of course. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Denise. I was born in Houston. I'm originally from Ghana and Sierra Leone, though, in West Africa. Um, I'm an experienced energy consultant at West Monroe, and I've been here for about a year and four months now. And I'm also a founding member of our Black Employee Network. So I'm very excited to be here. Um, so my experience with race at work, I think I've always kind of lived by the mantra of having to be twice as good to get half as far. Um, and that in itself can be extremely exhausting. Um, so I'm currently the first and only African-American woman to become an energy consultant at my firm. And it truly took some of the most extraordinary opportunities and circumstances to get me here. And these are opportunities that are not very common in the black community, hence why I usually find myself by myself. And this is especially true within the energy industry, which is predominantly non-black. I mean, my petroleum engineering graduating class had about 150 students, and I was one of two women, um, which seemed pretty normal. Um, but I would say the only reason that I even got into the energy industry myself um, is because when I was seven, my family and I moved to Saudi Arabia so that my parents could pursue their careers in oil and gas industry. Um, so it was really just because they were in it that I was even introduced to it. And because of that one opportunity, I was able to attend private elementary and middle schools where my teachers were highly committed to our success. And then a top pre-collegiate boarding school for high school that taught me discipline and focus. And then pursuing a bachelor's and master's degree in engineering programs at top universities where I was awarded um, scholarships and had a lot of mentors and then even given wild internship opportunities like conducting nuclear research for the Department of Energy. Just all of these great opportunities and all of this extremely hard work and that's just to make it to the entry-level consulting position at my firm. 
So it's, it's really no wonder that I am the only one. Um, but I think the craziest part about all of this is that even with all of the experience that I know that I have, when I walk into a room and find that I'm the only black one there, there's always a little bit of imposter syndrome that wants to pop out and tell me, oh, well, you're only here because they have to meet a quota. So, so that can get really tough. Um, and especially on your first day when you're told by the IND lead um, that if you refer a diverse candidate, you get a larger referral bonus. Now, this always has me really torn because on one hand, you know, I'm, I'm super glad that steps are being take, taken to increase Black talent. Of course, I would love more Black talent in these um, spaces. But on the other hand, I'm like, so does this mean that everyone is kind of looking at me like, oh, well, she only got here because somebody wanted to make some extra cash? And if that's the case, should that even matter to me? Should I care? You know, but... It's, it's just, it's difficult to constantly have to maneuver that. That's a great example, Denise. And, and I've, uh, we talked about this a little bit. I've struggled with that myself as a woman in technology, wondering um, if I had to work twice as hard to, you know, to, to work twice as hard to perform, to be accepted and, and, it only recently occurred to me to ask the question, maybe I only have to work half as hard because uh, they really need me. Um, but that's not the, that's not the instinct uh, that right. you have when and, you have imposter syndrome. And I think with that, even there's, there's privilege in that, right? Because if I were to all of a sudden work less hard, mm -hmm. I, I think I would lose my job a little quicker than maybe you might. So that's just like, that's another I, thing to deal with, right? So I haven't tried it yet. Do you want to raise? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. I don't either. I don't either. That's real though. That's real. Yeah, that's real. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So can we hear um, a story or example from Bruce next? Bruce, would you like to go? Sure. Um, hi, my name is Bruce Ferguson. I am a senior consultant at West Monroe Partners, and I am the only black African-American employee in my office in Minneapolis. In terms of my personal story and experience, it's pretty much still true. I live two lives. I live my life at work where I am a professional and I'm not African-American, if I'm gonna be totally honest. I am first and foremost, a consultant and a professional who to Terry and Denise's point, has to work twice as hard to get half as far. So I work three times as hard to get the full time, to get the full distance. But when it comes to what I deal with in my community, my friends and the people that I associate with, they have to be a part of my other life. Because if I were to say, come into certain situations with my friends based on their political views, social views and others, a lot of my coworkers, I believe, and I honestly have been given reason to believe this throughout this career, would dismiss me and dismiss them because either they find their blackness intimidating, they find their desire to talk about political conversations intimidating, and therefore kind of push me to the sidelines because they associate me 
with those type of conversations and they associate me with those type of politics. So I have to live separate lives because that's the only way how I can, one, get the income to support myself and my community, and then to be present in that community wholly. And that's really challenging because there are so, so many times so often that I have to focus on being the most eloquent, elegant, precise, and succinct in a conversation in a room because even the slightest deviation to slang or anything that doesn't seem appropriate to that professional context. And this isn't unique to black people. This is unique to anyone who is from another culture working in America or from a minority culture working in America. We have to code switch and we have to keep a part of our life separate from the workplace. Even as people are showing their kids, showing their family and others, we have to think about, okay, if my child doesn't look the right way, how are my coworkers gonna see that? How are they gonna feel about that? Or if my friends aren't dressed the right way, how is that going to be perceived? So my story is kind of, that's what my mom has always told me, keep your professional life and your personal life separate because your coworkers won't understand your personal life and it will scare them. I wanna, <clears throat> I wanna dig into that just a little if we, if we could, Bruce, because I know there's, um, there's this concept of, of wearing a suit to work. Mm. And I, I don't mean a, a suit and tie, I mean a persona um, that doesn't meet the status or that meets the status quo and that blends in and it doesn't make waves. But we have so much evidence that the status quo doesn't fuel progress and it, mm. it doesn't make interesting work and it doesn't fulfill us as humans. So is there some, uh, is there some middle ground between, you know, just being a completely code switching and being, you know, more yourself that, that you could imagine getting comfortable with? Well, anyone, I would answer that to say that the middle ground is confidants at work. There, I have coworkers, I have people who are like one-on-one -on -one can understand both my two lives, be in both spaces and be comfortable with it. And these recent events with George Floyd have really made it clear who those people are. But that doesn't change the fact that when it comes to just the everyday coworker or anything like that, office gossip is real. And then there's also, when we talk about inclusion and diversity, there's this idea of aesthetic novelty, where that if we represent these people in this way, it doesn't even matter who they are, African-American, um, LGBT, um, from a different country, that we are somehow more progressive. And it's more for the appearance of being progressive, where it's like, here you are, participate in this design workshop. Here you are, represent this global perspective. But when it comes to cultural activities or social activities that more aligns with that cultural group's preference, that's when it crosses a line. No, we do happy hours. No, we drink. No, we go see sports games. That's what, just with, from a consulting perspective, that's the culture that I work in. And I'm not gonna speak that for anybody else on the call, but I'm just gonna speak from my perspective. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce. Um, you know, bringing up um, workplace confidence is definitely one of the themes we want to make sure we talk about is allyship and how we can do better there. Um, before I ask um, Olivia to share a story, um, does anyone um, 
want to provide some thoughts to that question that Ellie asked and Bruce, Bruce's responses? I would love to ask um, Bruce, uh, you mentioned that you have those, those confidants at work um, that you feel like you can kind of involve in both, both of your lives or both of your worlds. Mm. And um, Ellie had mentioned that, um, you know, that there's uh, various studies that show that uh, actual like progress happens when we are not just kind of keeping the status quo. Do you have any thoughts or does anybody have any thoughts on how some of those confidants or allies in the workplace can help create an environment where those two worlds can come together more and help create that kind of progress that, that, I, that many of us want to see? I don't want to take up too much time, but I can respond to that since the question was addressed to me. Um, so there's a tool called the trust equation that defines trust as credibility, reliability, and intimacy over self-orientation. And so oftentimes when it comes to inclusion and diversity initiatives, it's approached from a self-oriented lens where would you be willing to speak from your perspective to represent the black community? And the black community is pretty diverse. I mean, you can see it just on this call in terms of who's here. And so that's what I would describe as a self-oriented request. But another piece that really drives trust is intimacy. How I found my confidants is that they were vulnerable with me in terms of how they felt either excluded at work or some of the challenges they had at work. Either it was um, as, as, a, as a woman, Bruce, how do you navigate the space of, well, not me as a woman, but them as a woman coming from a woman saying, Bruce, how do you navigate the space of being tokenized? And then we had an honest conversation about that. Or do you feel that there's racism in the workplace from the perspective of a person of another color? And so if you are a confidant, it has to be of a place of, I need help and I know you need help and let's just have honest conversations about how we feel and starting with feelings. Like throughout this George Floyd incident, I've seen an uptick in crime in my neighborhood because I'm two blocks from the memorial. And I had an honest conversation about that I was scared to my project manager. And that's how he became a confidant because he said, I'm worried about you. It was a legitimate and real relationship rooted in feeling not in necessarily like a task or an activity is what I'd say to that. I have found that true allies are willing to Bruce's point to share those really vulnerable missteps. And I know Bruce, you said that, but that's one of the biggest facts I use to distinguish someone who thinks there might be something they can get for me or is trying to get in on company gossip or whatever else from someone who truly is interested. I also find that real allies are observant and they may come to you and say, you know, I noticed at this meeting there wasn't a single person of color in the room and I'm feeling awkward about that. Um, and, you know, I'd love any advice or just to talk with you about it. They're observant and they see because these things are out here. We see when there's no people of color in the room. We see when the hiring pool comes in and it's people who look exactly the same 
as the people who've already been hired. And it's always striking to me when others don't seem to notice, don't seem to care, don't seem to speak up, you can pick your poison. Um, and so a true ally is gonna be someone whose eyes are open and who's watching to see that everyone is in the conversation, in the room and participating, and that others are not left out. And also I would add, um, for me, allies are the ones who walk the walk, right? Like in a time like this, as the oppressed person here, do I wanna hear so much about how, you know, how bad you feel? No. Cause I've I've been feeling that bad for a long time. So I that that doesn't that doesn't really bring value to me. Like I'm I'm glad that you have woken up. I'm glad that this is finally in your radar and that like you're here. But like we got places to go. Like we need action. I need you to be calling those offices. I need you to be donating. I need to know like yeah, I, I saw that this was happening. So I spoke to my manager and we're going to have this discussion at my company because I think it's important. Like I had people legitimately sending me screenshots like, hey, I'm, I'm about to have this discussion at work. Like, what do you think I should like be about it? I like action. We because because now we're at this pivotal moment where we're finally all on board. And this kind of thing cannot go away unless we're all working together. And we've seen that in the past. And, and that's why this moment is just so crazy, because we're able to have these conversations finally, right? And, and now we just need to take the opportunity to, to change things and move forward together. Gosh, that was, that was really well said. Um from all of our guests. So I wanna make sure we get in um, Olivia's story and then really open it up to more of this um, great discussion. Olivia, would you be willing to share a story with us? Sure, thank, thank you. you. Um, well, thank you again for inviting me to be able to participate on this um, discussion. Um, I'm an independent consultant. I've been an independent consultant focused on strategy and ops for several years now. And um, I want to share a bit about what I believe are some shared experiences for many of us on this, this panel um, that are probably stems across many industries, and that's passive aggressive microaggressions. Um, many of us know what this looks like, but some of us may not actually really recognize it. So I'm just going to share my example. And I was on a client project, and I was working with a very brilliant thought leader who's very well known in this industry. Um, this is a Fortune 500 company, uh, and he had a senior leadership team that reported to him that, was, that I was tasked with um, helping support, stand up this new business unit, and create like very clear plans uh, for the future, for their work streams. So it's a very standard client engagement, um, clear deliverables, clear timeline to work with. And I've been on so many projects, I thought this was very easy work. Um, and it was, it was in many ways, it was a fascinating engagement, um, leveraged my skills, worked easily with the majority of the team, um, helped support all of them. But what I found pretty surprising was the difference in engagement between some of the different senior leaders. Um, some were very happy to work with me, excited, appreciated my collaboration, made it very clear that I helped add value to their um, work streams. And then there were others that, um, acted the exact opposite. 
um, even though I was literally tasked with helping make their lives easier. Um, and so that's where I experienced microaggressions. Um, and they were displayed in various ways from ignoring my work emails that I would send to them um, to ignoring my requests to want to meet with them, to talk about some of the things that we needed to discuss, uh, to literally ignoring me in the hallways when I would pass them when I was on client site. Um, and so, see, at first I thought, um, I realized that these microaggressions um, were not really personal. And then I realized, no, this is actually meant to communicate to me that the work that I'm doing or supposed to be doing is not important enough for them. Um, and I remembered at one point when it really dawned on me, oh, no, this is directed at me, that um, there was, um, when I was in strategy consulting um, for a large like firm, a senior executive told me, Olivia, they are not yet that comfortable with us. And um, this was a woman who was a senior executive that looked like me. And that is very rare for me to have um, since then and since literally then and since then. And so I will never forget those words coming from her. And she just said that and it has stayed with me. And um, I, yeah, I remember it quite well. So anyways, on this particular engagement, I'm going back to this like fantastic thought leader um, said that his team should see me as his representative. And when he said that to me, I was dumbfounded because I didn't feel that way at all. Um, but um, weeks later, months into the engagement, um, the client actually said to me, like completely unprovoked, and I'm just gonna write this out because I, I wrote this out and I said, Olivia, I have seen this work with your generation and this generation, meaning his. And he said, and I've seen it not work. And I realized that this was the client's way of acknowledging that he was observing what I was experiencing from just, again, just a portion of his senior leadership team. So um, it wasn't lost on me that no one on the senior leadership team looks like me. No one at the company um, of full of executives looked like me. Um, and virtually no one at the company at all looks like me, um, apart from one or two support staff that I bumped into that literally flagged me down when they saw me in their cafeteria. <laughs> So um, for me, it begs the question, why? Why aren't there more minorities in corporate headquarters that are black in their senior ranks? Why do they not have a seat at this table? This is a trend that I have seen across several industries for over a decade. Um, and my question continues to be, why is this still happening after so many decades? It doesn't have anything to do with the talent pipeline because there are many programs that exist to recruit black minorities across the country. Data points also show that companies perform better when there is a diverse executive board and diverse executive leadership that's actually more reflective of what our modern society looks like today. So again, why do our companies continue to come up so short? And again, just with what's been happening over the last several weeks, I am actually thrilled about this momentum supporting Black Lives Matter and the social media initiatives such as the pull-up challenge, 
which was launched a few weeks ago, where companies are being challenged to literally drop the figures, drop the numbers of how their corporate ranks are reflected. How many minorities do you have? Like how many people of color, how many women? Um, at your headquarters, not in your smaller retail outlets or not in your uh, you know, low level or assistant or like at your headquarters. And so I wonder if this momentum will continue and if it will, for how long? So um, I'm just gonna leave it there and um, yeah. look forward to this discussion. Thank you, Olivia. There's a couple of really, really complicated layers there. And I heard this in what Terry said too. This is what I'm talking about with the birdcage analogy that really spoke to me because what I heard from you both was if you're in this situation and this, these microaggressions are happening to you, how long does it take before you know what to attribute it to? You know, how, how do you... How do you know that that's what it is? And I've heard this from a lot of people that, that are earlier in, in their career. You want to second guess yourself and go, no, it's not racism or it's not gender issue or it's not this or that. And you, and, you know, I, I don't think anybody wants to rush to, to that being the first answer. Mm -hmm. um, but at some point it becomes clear because I, I think when it's overt, it's easier to be an ally because you can go, hey, don't do that. You can't say that. Don't act like that. Mm -hmm. But when it's when it's more subtle and more of a long, um, a long haul, it, it's 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 a lot harder to recognize, and we need to keep having these conversations. So thank you for sharing that. The second layer of complexity is what the hell do I do if it's a client? Like my whole job is to serve clients. I'm in the service industry and, and I know some of our students are in the service industry as well and, and have questions about that. So I'll turn it over to, um, to uh, Linford. I think you had a question about this. Or maybe it was Gabe. Yes. Um, no, sure. I, I, could, I could go on. Thanks everyone yeah. for sharing your stories. Um, to be honest with you, it's, it's good to hear the different stories because they're all different, but I felt as if I was a part of all of those stories at some point in my career. Um, so the one question I had, and I know we just talked about this, Denise, was about action. Um, could any of one of the panelists give us an example of your company or company you've been at that took action that allow you to feel, you know, better or didn't feel left out, that it did something and you felt you were actually a part of that company? I can, I can start off real quick with a short example. Um, after you know all the craziness happened with George Floyd, rather shortly afterwards, um, West Monroe hosted a discussion that Friday where everyone was able to come on the call, share their stories, just really open up and be vulnerable. And people were on this call, there were tears. It was, people's emotions were chucked up to here. I mean, it was really, it was really an emotional moment, but I know for myself, this is the first time in my whole entire career that it's been okay to talk about these things and it's been okay to share um, my story. So I think um, a lot of companies, if they haven't done it already, just kind of opening the floor for these conversations like yeah they're uncomfortable let them be uncomfortable like it's it's a very uncomfortable topic but they have to the conversations have to start because that's the only way that you're going to get to 
um, some sort of solution uh, for your company, whether that's all of you coming together to powwow on, okay, so what is our community specifically going to do? What is this office going to do? Um, are we going to donate to a school? Are we going to sponsor a family? Are we like, what organizations are we going to donate to? Like, what can we do? But I think it's, it's very important that you open it up and, and allow colleagues to hear that their colleagues are suffering. At a time like this, you know, it's, it's having to work and then feel so sad and, and just vulnerable, but still having to do your work, it's tough. It's, it's more than tough. It's, it's, it's exhausting. It's um, all the things. So just showing, showing that you care by listening is really, I think that's a great first step. Can I just add to that as well? Um, I, I agree that it's exhausting. Um, I believe that it's been happening for so long and that it's so clear and that if anyone wanted to pay attention and see it, that they know how they can be an ally. Um, it's, 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 it's embedded in our society. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and I think part of it comes from fear. I really do. Um, I think it's fear of unknown. I think it's fear of lack of understanding. I think it's fear of the idea of having to connect and relate to someone that you may not have any shared experiences. Um, and that comes down to fear, unknown. And if you can just take away that fear, which is very hard to do. I mean, think of what you're afraid of, um, just anything that you're afraid of and how hard it is to overcome that kind of a fear. Um, it's not easy. So it's um, in many ways, it'll take a long time. But um, what I think is important is to show the commitment to wanting to to change that, to, to, to move away from the current status quo and to not just pay lip service. So, because to be honest, many of us are tired. I mean, I'm just going to echo what Denise said. Like I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm very tired. <laughs> and I, in many ways realize that I feel that in many, I don't, I'm just there to do work, be a catalyst, do my job and go. Because in so many instances, it's so embedded. I mean, you have people that are not going to change. Just statistically, behavior change is very difficult to, to, to happen. It is very difficult to happen. So, um, yeah. Thank it. you for that, <laughs> Olivia. One, I, one. One area, I just want to extrapolate on one point Olivia made because I thought it was powerful and it was the idea of lip service and fear. And it kind of connects to Denise's point where there has to be a sense of ownership that the problems that are confronting any minorities, African Americans at your work are your own. And we talk about allyship. Allyship is earned. Like, and this is true of any group that you're working with. Allies can choose to just say, I don't want to associate with you based on how you've conducted yourself in this environment or in this workplace. A lot of the times as consultants, we come into situations where we see an environment where they operate in silos. Silos come from culture 
they don't come from just organization. So where a large group of people, like in my case, I work in manufacturing, a lot of folks I work with on the ground in operations are primarily Latinx or are primarily black, while their leadership and their management structures are primarily white. And because a lot of those manufacturers haven't made the effort to take ownership of the racism and other issues that are affecting their employees who are working the floor, those companies are failing because the ops don't feel like they can put in the most effort for work, nor do they feel like they should. So this whole idea of allyship is really just a question of where is the ownership? Where are these ownership of these problems as they divide our organizations? And really, are we really approaching the fear and actually taking efforts to understand it? Thank you. I want to make sure that Hannah um, and Gabe have a chance to ask their questions. Um, but, but before I do, I think I may have cut someone off. Did someone want to say something? Okay, Hannah, did you have a question? Okay, so one thing I've been dealing with is the lack of mentorship. So especially at a graduate level, finding not only, you know, someone in a similar situation, another black person, but a black female in a higher level in different professions, it's almost impossible. So, I mean, I've experienced that in the military, I've experienced that in finance, I experienced that throughout my MBA. There's no black women in an authoritative power in roles that offer, can offer guidance to how to navigate this path, being a black woman in, you know, a very white corporate America. And so, you know, how have you guys been able to navigate that you know, I'm assuming it's similar within consulting and, you know, attorneys, stuff like that, trying to find somebody to help map that path. I've found that professional organizations have been, um, African-American professional organizations have been a wonderful resource for mentors. Um, but I also want to make sure that as um, I'm hearing you speak, Hannah, I understand that you're looking for mentors or sponsors because those are two different roles. Um, so a mentor, in my opinion, is someone who um, is there to talk with you about the role, how to execute the role beautifully, how to get tasks done and um, achieve what you need to achieve at the level that you're at or perhaps to get to the next level. A sponsor is a person who is at a very high level, who can be instrumental in helping you make that leap. Um, so their role is not so much to advise you on specific tasks or projects or on a day-to-day, -day, but to introduce you to the right people, to make sure you're in the right rooms, to make that leap from one point to another point, whether it's in your current workplace or a different workplace. Um, for both of those, um, especially if I'm looking for African-American women, I found, in my case, the legal professional organizations, both on the national level and on the local state level, to be wonderful resources. Thank you. Thanks, Hannah. Uh, Gabe, would you like to jump in with a question? Yes. Um, thank you all, to all the panelists for, for sharing your stories. It's always great as a white male. It's great dose of humility and reminder of all of the privilege that I have and um, keeps me thinking about, you know, all of the many, many blind spots I have. Um, and so one thing I, I kind of want to dig in more on is microaggressions. And I think, um, Olivia, you, you painted a great picture of 
what some of those can be and just really basic examples of how it can show up in, in more ways than even people who are more familiar with that term um, might not even think about. One thing I've, I've wondered about that is, is how do, you know, what have you found has been a comfortable environment and maybe it's never comfortable, but are there times when you've been able to have discussions about microaggressions in the workplace, either with the person who, who was offending, doing the offending or with an ally where um, those conversations, you just, there was good things that came out of those conversations or good takeaways for us to, to think about when we're in the workplace and um, whether it's being more observant, like some of you guys are saying in terms of really paying attention to, oh, I may have offended that person or um, just listening and, and being open to to uh, hearing where, where you might have missed that. Just any experience that you guys have that you could share would be super helpful to hear. Um, yeah, so I actually had an experience once with a colleague. It was my first time meeting them, um, older white male. And upon meeting him, you know, I was, I usually always try to make eye contact with people. I like to shake their hand and things like that. And he was refusing to make eye contact with me and he refused to shake my hand. And so, you know, I'm sitting there like, oh, Denise, just try it again at a little bit later. Tried it again and still not making eye contact with me, not engaging, like we're in a group and he's talking to everyone but me. So immediately, even, even if I didn't want it to go there, I'm like, it's because I'm black. It's, it's, it's literally because I'm black because everyone else here is white and he's talking to all of them. So even if that wasn't the case, which I think it was, but <laughs> even if it wasn't the case, that's, you know, that's what goes through my head. So my first instinct was, um, you know, first I asked some of the other people um, who were white that have encountered him and they had nothing but great things to say about him. And I was like, all right. I don't need to be asking y'all then. So then I tried to, I, I spoke with um, a woman of color. She wasn't black, but she was of color. And she was like, oh, this is not okay. This is not right. You do not need to be dealing with this. And she immediately took it up to directors. And the next day I got a phone call from my directors, like whatever you wanna do, we're with you. We will support it. If you want us to talk to this guy, we will. If you don't, we won't. And at the time, you know, I had just started uh, with the company and I was like, and I, I shouldn't have been thinking this, but I was like, I only have so many black cards to play. So maybe I should save it. Cause I, it's, I also can't just in every instance be like, he's racist, he's racist. Cause then, and then my credibility is just it's gone. It's lost. So, um, you know, what ended up happening in that situation is I, I was like, it's okay. It's all right. Keep moving forward. Thank you for the support, though. But just having that incredible support and having those phone calls, like, we don't stand for this. Like, what do you need us to do? Like, this guy, blah, blah, blah. Just having that, I felt comfortable with moving forward and kind of letting it go. But Denise, can I just ask? I'm and I'm glad that it, well I should ask was it resolved I mean did he shake your hand did he want to no. talk to you no um, but I mean I don't luckily our 
our paths don't cross very often. So it, it was able to be swept under um, the rug. It shouldn't have so, been. <laughs> so, so I guess that's part of my point is, um, I and mean, I was hoping that wasn't the conclusion, but when the senior leadership team had an opportunity to speak to you about this happening and they asked you yeah. what, they, what they should do, I actually don't think it's fair that they asked you. I think that they should have taken the onus on themselves to privately pull this person across, pull them right. aside and, and speak to them and communicate to them to shape up you know, right. and it doesn't sound like anyone took that initiative to make that happen. I, and I think it's unfair because yeah. um, this is exactly what we're talking about. You know, like you cannot carry that company's, that organization's uh, like diversity. It's not fair. Everyone should know that this is a business. We're all colleagues and we work together. We're professionals. This person is not displaying his professionalism. So that's why it should be dealt with. They shouldn't have to ask you, Denise, what they should do with their unprofessional colleague. So that's my perspective on that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that these types of microaggressions are allowed because people don't call them out. The people who are seeing them, um, the people who know that it's happening, and once they are, they're the ones in power. They're the ones who know that they have the opportunity to nip it in the butt, to call right. the attention to it so that it's eradicated. But if they don't do it, then it won't. It will continue. And that's why I think it continues to fester in so many organizations, at least in my experience. I've seen it. So I, 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 don't, think it was, I don't think it was fair that that burden was placed on your shoulders. You know, I, I, that's I will clarify to say I was asked whether or not I felt comfortable with them escalating it to the next level and I ultimately made the decision that I wasn't and and looking back now that was because I, I you know I was scared of what might have happened so I ultimately yeah. was like please don't ring the alarm please don't do this I, I I don't even I don't want the attention around it I don't want them to think I'm I'm angry and oversensitive and I'm just happy to be, I'm just happy to have a job like I, I'm just happy to be here and that shouldn't this, be the case yeah but this is a moment this is a moment for allies to pay attention and to earn their allyship so I had a um, I was in a meeting once and there were two white men speaking over a woman um, constantly, the entire meeting. It was so frustrating. And at the end of the meeting, I was leading it. I let everybody, I wrapped it up. And I said, you two, I need you to stay for a minute. Because I know that the woman who had had that experience would have been mortified if anyone, if she thought that uh, if she had had to make that same decision, Denise, that had been put in that same situation, she she would have done the same thing because it's scary. And I agree with you, Olivia. It's not fair. That's not the right way to handle it. But I took them aside and said, I watched you two do this the whole meeting, and it's not acceptable, and you have to do better. And it doesn't need to go beyond that. You just, and, and they can't, um, they know that, this woman didn't make a complaint, didn't have 
she didn't do anything except try to present what she was her work and they talked over her the whole time so they're like I wasn't afraid that they would retaliate because she didn't file a complaint of any kind. She didn't, she didn't bring it up. But it, I think if you want to be an ally in those moments, it's to, to help prevent um, de uh, people like Denise getting put into that situation, putting into that impossible choice because it's so hard. I'd like to chime in on that just to provide maybe a different perspective per se as regarding allyship and also to speak to Gabe's question about, can you give an example where when it comes to microaggressions, we found a way to deal with it? A lot of organizations and a lot of companies, and I'm thankful to work for a company that clearly defines its culture, its values, its mission. And it's very hard to hold people accountable to something that doesn't exist. And there are a lot of employers who haven't put as much thought into that. And then when it comes to microaggressions and micro invalidation, and this is purely in the case of this, is that sometimes different cultures and different people, how they construct their social interactions, if it's not clearly defined by a professional organization, can lead to a lot of in, can lead to a lot of microaggressions being received and projected. I'll give you an example. Um, I was when I had a client that was a predominantly Chinese company. When it comes to when we're in meetings, everyone in that everyone in that company believes a person in a leadership position should speak and communicate the message. That's kind of that cultural value system, and that's how they operate. When it came to one of the younger consultants I was working with, and this is not me to erase anyone's experience or to say it's wrong or anything, but just to point out a discussion and how this is a process. It's not just a reactive action. It's a process how organizations find themselves is that when one of the junior members of our team spoke up, she felt she was being gaslighted because they asked her, they basically ignored her and then waited for the most powerful person on our team to communicate back to them. That was a cultural difference to how those two different organizations operated between how we as a consulting firm operated and the Chinese client operated. And this is not how all Chinese companies operate, but it's an important thing to note. What happened after that conversation is that uh, the junior consultant spoke up and said, I felt like I was gaslighted in that situation. And the project manager, knowing the culture that they were working with and knowing who she was, had a conversation with the leadership and explained how that situation was perceived by her in terms that they could understand and then they could make adjustments. The challenge is a lot, of, I feel like a lot of what we're talking about is getting to the question of who has a legitimacy to act in that situation and it isn't always clear cut. And there's also an incentive to really make a spectacle of acting to show that we are taking a stand against this, we are making a point about this, but the problem is is that we are business people first and foremost. We have jobs, we have professions and we work with diverse individuals. So there are times when we really have to take an intersectional gaze to achieve an outcome. And the way to prevent those situations from happening is really have intentional conversations or ask your organization, what is your mission statement? What is your value statement? How do you feel people should be treated? What is stewardship? And I just wanted to say that because I've seen kind of micro conversations on microaggressions derail into outward conflict between employees and coworkers 
because of how people perceive things differently. And I just wanted to provide an example where that can be resolved through kind of the right communication and really having a structure in place where people can elevate those concerns. And I just don't want that to be neglected from the conversation. Thank you, Bruce. Um, we are coming up on time here. We've got a little under five minutes. And so uh, before we wrap, I wanted to ask um, our guests for just maybe a final thought. Um, you know, we started off to explore your experience with race at work and really trying to learn um, what it looks like to be a better, um, more action oriented ally. And so I'll just ask um, if we could get your final closing thoughts um, on that topic. That would be fantastic. Terry, we started with you at the top. Do you want to go first? Sure. I always say, or not always say, but I've said to people in some situations, it's so simple and it's so hard. Um, an ally has to stand up. Um, Denise, my hope in your situation is that when you said, you know what, I, I, I'm not comfortable with you taking action at this point, that they then began a process of watching him because what Ellie was able to do is, is so powerful from an ally perspective because when it's Ellie's observation of what happened to someone else, it's a very different reception than if perhaps the woman in Ellie's example had spoken up which would have been more similar to what happened to Denise. Um, so it's very simple, but it's very hard. It means you as an ally have to use some of your credibility. Um, you have to put some of your skin on the line to speak out, speak up, to say, hey, why isn't there anybody black on the hiring panel? Um, why have the last four promotions been to someone um, white? Why didn't that project, why isn't that project team staffed or headed by a person of color. And that means using some of your political capital to get that done. Mm -hmm. well Bruce, do you want to go next? Um, closing thought, uh, I guess I would just say that um, it's important that if we move forward from this, we can't just focus on like, oh, this is a black issue or this is an issue that only pertains to one group. This is an issue we all deal with. And I think to the comment that I start out with, with living two lives, I think that sometimes people have an issue where they feel like they can experience microaggressions or micro invalidations, or they can't be discriminated against in the workplace given who they are. And we all have situations where we need an ally to support us. And I don't want anyone to walk away from this to say, well, I'm the person who needs to save people in this context. No, that's not what it's about there. It's about how do we create cultures mm -hmm. that are really inclusive and represent the fact of who we are as human beings. That was well said. Thank you. Denise, do you want to give us your final thought? Yeah, sure. Um, to my allies, I would say, you know, this is a movement, not a moment. Um, mm -hmm. So don't lose steam. Don't kind of hop off the bandwagon once it seems a little less cool to be involved. You know, make sure that this is this is a long lasting thing and not just something we're all doing because we're stuck at home during a pandemic, you know. And um, with regards to your organizations, start asking questions like, what's our three year plan for this? What's our 10 year plan? Start kind of ingraining this in your culture um, so that you know you can begin to move forward. So 
just keep action in mind. Thank you, Denise. Olivia? Uh, thank you. I, I, I love what Denise said in terms of keep um, action in mind. I think that's so important. Um, and I think just for the individuals out there that are wondering or what they can do, I say stay strong, you know, stay strong because there will be so many opportunities for you to, to, there will be many opportunities where you may experience these things, these issues, these microaggressions, these um, potential closed doors and stay strong. Know that um, they're just, it's just the path of life. There are blockades that you'll be able to maneuver around and um, be, have, have grit, have true grit um, and invest in yourself. Um, and believe in yourself because the moment you ever stop to believe in yourself, everyone else will as well. And what I would say to people who want to be allies, um, pull up. I would say that, you know, educate yourself and work on your emotional intelligence because it's right there in the room or in your leadership ranks, you know, pay attention develop that emotional intelligence and think critically about how you can help shift what has been persistent in these corporate ranks, what has been persistent in this lack of diversity. What can you do to help not only acknowledge it, but to help start shifting it and to move away from what is the lip service that has continued, but um, thinking critically and really honestly working on emotional intelligence. I think that is very undervalued, but so important. Being able to, you know, be an ally really means having high emotional intelligence. So I think that's about it. But thank you. Thank you for your time, everyone. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, this is, I wish we could keep going. Um, I, I honestly could just sit back here and listen. I feel like I've learned so much. Um, I'll, I'll hand it back over to Ali to bring us out, but I I wanted to say my, my biggest learning coming out of this is how different I feel after just one hour of listening to stories. Um, and we often lack for follow up and follow through. So one of my personal commitments now is um, not only to take away a lot of the allyship conversation and action, but the more stories I hear, um, the more uh, prepared I feel to actually you know, be a part of the change I, I definitely want to see. So I want to say thank you to everyone. Ellie, do you want to bring us home? I do. I'll land the plane. Uh, thank you all so much um, for being here today. You have been so generous with your time and, and so thoughtful. Um, I, I think these these conversations are so critical to be having. And, and I know that it can be emotional and it can it can trigger uh, a lot of things for you to come and, and speak about it. But I, my biggest fear, and I'll echo what Denise said, um, my biggest fear is that we'll, the conversation will, will fade out and it just can't. We just have to figure out how to have this be part of our daily lives and how to be um, part of our, our new normal um, and, and have these, these transparent and vulnerable conversations with each other so that we can get better is I I believe that we can I believe that we can get through this and we can 
we can figure it out. I have to have that optimism. So uh, thank you all so much for your contribution to this. Um, this was amazing. We're having all of these uh, comments that this was so, uh, so helpful uh, and, and so great. So thank you for being here and um, we'll catch you next time. I don't really have a closing, a good closing line. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.